0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we run the stenography of the blob media through a truth analyzer every week and try to give you the best assessments of what is really going on. In the next segment, we will be talking to Ted Carpenter of the Cato Institute about his new book, Unreliable Watchdog The News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. But first, this is a critical week in the Russia Ukraine War as referendums in four eastern regions of Ukraine, known as the Donbass, are quickly wrapping up as of this uh, recording. These regions have already already been occupied by the Russians and declared independent by Putin in February, 2022. This area, which is a stronghold of Russian-speaking Ukrainians has also seen constant fighting between Russian-backed militias and Ukrainian government forces since 2014. So as I mentioned, the voting ended today, Tuesday, And British intelligence said this morning that Putin is likely to annex these territories or at least ask for approval from the Russian Duma to appropriate them on Friday. So by the time this podcast is released on Friday, we will have a better understanding of what is happening. Uh, So, Dan, um, you know, I know there's a, a lot of speculation here, but the press is already announcing that this annexation is likely to happen and you know that would be a a real turning point in the war so far um do you have some thoughts on what would happen if putin does annex or russia does annex these uh ukrainian territories into the russian federation and what will that mean for us policy going forward
1: uh so yeah it's a it's a very worrisome uh, situation because Obviously, it, it makes it much more difficult to reach any kind of negotiated solution if the Russians are going to start laying permanent claim uh, to even more Ukrainian territory than they already have. And so whereas there, there might have been, in theory, a solution that would have allowed for autonomy for the Donbass back at the start of the war, uh, that, that now seems to be off the table. The Russians are now aiming to acquire a lot more than that and and beyond the donbass of course the, there are also these uh referendums in in uh, Kherson and and uh, zaporizhia so these are uh these are areas beyond territories that they had taken control of in 2014 and the years after that uh the, these are territories that they have seized uh in the last 6 7 months and so they're their hold on these is very tenuous. Of course, all of this is is, I think, a panicked reaction to their setbacks in their campaign. Um, and and you can sort of tell that it's a it's a panicked reaction because you have Russian officials from Putin on down saying that they will defend these territories up to and including the use of nuclear weapons, uh, if uh if they judge it to be necessary. And so that to me, that's the real uh danger going forward is that they're making claims that they're going to defend these newly annexed territories as though they are integral parts of Russia and of course the Ukrainian government can't accept that because it's, these are these are their territories they can't start pretending that they're really part of Russia and so that that creates a, a very dangerous scenario where Ukraine will try to take more territory and then the Russians will then maybe then feel compelled to back up these threats by actually setting off a nuke uh, which would be catastrophic, of course, uh, for Ukraine, and it would be extremely dangerous for everyone, uh, because then it would get agitation for direct intervention from the West, uh, going up to the, to the top of the the priority list. Um, that's uh, so that that's what I'm I'm worried about that they would actually end up uh, doing that in response to another Ukrainian offensive. In uh, in terms of U.S. policy, I think the priority has to be avoiding at all, as much as possible, any direct U.S.-Russian conflict. And so that means if, God forbid, the Russians were to set off a nuke, uh, the U.S. should not respond, uh, whether by conventional means or otherwise, uh, by directly attacking Russian forces. I think that would open up uh, the gates to hell, really. That would be the worst possible direction we could go. And so we we now need to be, I think, more cautious going forward than the U.S. and its allies have been in terms of the the level of support provided to Ukraine. I don't think that that means we have to scale back or take away anything that we've been providing, but I think it does mean that you have to be very careful about what kinds of weapons and what level of support you're prepared to give in the future, because you're now dealing with a much more unstable and dangerous situation than you were uh, just a little while ago. Uh, and so I'm, yeah. It's, it's it's very ugly, and I I hope that the U.S. and its allies have the the wisdom to refrain from overreacting uh, to what would, of course, be a, a catastrophic crime.
0: Yeah, and I'm and I'm sorry. At at the beginning, I had mentioned that uh, these were territories that had already been occupied, but as you point out, this goes beyond that footprint. In eastern Ukraine, in terms of like um, what what is up for rep- referendum right now,
1: right? Yeah, and, and so these are these include territories in in southern Ukraine, uh, in, in the the territory between Crimea and Ukrainian government-held territory, uh, where Russian forces are still in place, uh, and of course they, they're it's it's sort of curious that they're going through the the sham motions of holding referendums as though there's any doubt as to the outcome i mean they're, they're they're doing that simply to give sort of a rubber stamp to make it look sort of legitimate but but you we know, it's it's pretty much obvious that the results are going to be what moscow wants them to be and and so that in, in that sense it, it makes it even harder for ukraine and western governments uh ukrainian and western governments to to recognize those results because of course everyone understands that they're illegitimate and so it, it becomes very difficult to believe that anybody would respect these new boundaries as the territory of Rukka. And and that's that's an inherently unstable situation because the, the Russians feel that they have to back up those threats to make good on those claims, and everyone else doubts that they'll actually follow through on it, uh you're you're going to end up with nuclear detonations as a way of, of proving their point. And it's as i say it's 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 a very ugly situation
0: yeah and you know as my colleague Anatole Levin has pointed out they they did hold referendums in 2014 for the region of uh regions of donetsk and luhansk uh and they they did vote to join the russian federation but it did not lead to an annexation like crimea i mean that could happen this week uh you know it is not assured that Putin is going to ask the Duma for approval to annex uh, these new regions. Um, and like I said, we'll know by the time the show comes out um, what he does talk to, what he does say at, at the Duma on, on Friday. Um, so there might be a window of opportunity where, um, or this might be an elaborate feint, uh, and he doesn't annex, uh, but you know, the, the word is the, you know British intelligence did say in Tuesday's papers that that's what they expect. And frankly, that is what all of the mainstream media is talking about right now. So personally, I am concerned about the whipping up of um, more uh, bloodlust after this happens. If it does, if they do indeed move to annex, what will this mean uh, for U.S. and the West policy? I agree with you wholeheartedly that this could. This brings us closer to a direct confrontation between Russia and the U.S. and and NATO and Russia than ever before. And it'll, you know, it you know it'll it'll take quite a stomach to try to hold the line on that as the entire mainstream media is out there saying, "See, we told you." You know the Russia is uh in expansionist mode. Uh they see well, well beyond their their territories that they already declared part of Russia years ago. Uh this means that they, you know, they could be going after NATO countries next. And you're gonna see a real ramping up here in Washington. You know, uh as you know, we've reported and you know, I, I've written about this week, you know, the $12 billion in aid is is now being um not debated, but has been you know, included in a massive emergency spending bill uh, to keep the United States government open. And that's $12 billion on top of, you know, for Ukraine aid, on top of the $40 billion that Congress approved in May. And of that $12 billion is, um, you know, uh, half of it is for weapons and other military support. And the other half, is, is to keep Kiev running, to keep their government running for just one quarter. <laughs> so we are so heavily invested and I feel like news like this, developments like this are just going to embolden the Hawks in the, in in the. US government and Congress for, for uh, sending more weapons and investing more U.S tax dollars um, and bringing us closer to the brink of war directly with Russia.
1: Yeah, well, and I, I mean, there there is a real danger there, and, and one of the and of course all of this is taking place against the backdrop of this mobilization of more manpower inside Russia, uh, which has had the effect of, of driving lots of Russians to flee the country, uh, but also uh, has the potential to bolster Russian forces by uh, some hundreds of thousands. It's it's not clear exactly how many they're going to end up calling up. I I know I've seen a lot of people saying that the Russians don't have the, the means to train all of these new troops and they don't have the means to supply them and so they're they're really just giving themselves more of a headache and more problems down the road by bringing more people into it and of course more political problems for the government uh, by making the war more costly for the average uh, russian but but it is uh, concerning that they're, they're just, the 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 russian leadership and putin himself are so committed to their uh, to their war uh, to continuing that war, uh, no matter what, uh, that they're prepared to take these very large political risks uh, to keep it going and to keep and to to expand their commitment to it uh, when things have been going so horribly for them. And so I, that that is very troubling because it suggests that there is uh, they're kind of locked in to this uh, constant push for more and more escalation, no matter how badly the war goes for them. Uh, and I think we're also seeing that they're, they're repeating these nuclear threats now because the, the weakness of their conventional forces has been exposed so uh, dramatically with their recent uh, failures in the Northeast. So it's it, it's very concerning that there there's no, seems to be no reassessment going on uh, in the Kremlin uh, and no no recognition that the costs have now far exceeded any possible benefits that they're going to get out of this. But then that's been the problem with this war from the beginning. Based on any kind of rational assessment of Russian interests, it doesn't make sense for them to be doing what they're doing. And so it's it's very difficult to see what it is that finally snaps them out of this and gets them to to realize that it's not going to work out for them. And so we're, we face a, a much more unstable and dangerous situation uh, going forward than we have over the last six months, uh, and I'm uh, like you, i'm I'm concerned that people on our side, the, the most aggressive hawks on our side are going to try to exploit that, advocate for for a much uh, more confrontational policy than we've already had. Um, on on the assumption that they, they, basically they can get away with it. And I think you know, we can keep escalating our involvement up to, to some point when finally the Russians will inflict uh, some retaliation directly on NATO or on U.S. forces uh, as a way to, to show that we can't keep getting away with it. And then uh, at that point, uh, we're, we're on the way to disaster. Yeah,
0: and uh, one note, though, I, I feel, and because I'm you know scouring the headlines every morning for my job, you know, I find the same themes and tropes, and um, you know, in every headline and every uh, lead, you know, about how terrible the uh, Russian military is doing, how you know, uh, how Ukraine has turned the tables. You know how the how the you know the mobilization has been impacted by all sorts of folly and they can't get things together and the protests are overcoming mobilization efforts in in moscow and i'm starting to get this sense or maybe not starting to get this sense but i get this sense mm-hmm. that the media uh the, the mainstream media has bought into a single narrative about what's going on on the ground there and what's going on politically and we are not getting the full story. I go to independent sources as well every morning, and I find a, a bit of a different story. And a lot of it is is talking about the casualties of the Ukrainian side, and um, the suffering that the soldiers are encountering in these operations. They're fighting very valiantly, but they're losing a lot of men and they're having a hell of a time recruiting. They're pulling people out of shops, they're pulling people out of farms and they're throwing them into a meat grinder. And our mainstream media isn't talking about that. And what I fear is that we are gonna keep funding this war based on these media narratives that, wow, if Ukraine could just get just just some more high tech weapons from the west it can this thing will go this this thing will get, get to the finish line and i feel like there is no finish line i feel like this is a war of attrition and that we are feeding it and 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 the mainstream media fear is is feeding it and we'll be talking to to ted carpenter in the next segment about how the the, the media is complicit in a lot of these wars and engaging um prolonged wars um so that's that's one of my big fears about the the, the at least the media coverage of 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 the Russia Ukraine war t- right now at this moment.
1: Our guest today is Ted Carpenter, he's senior fellow for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's the author of many books, including Smart Power Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America, Rulable Superpower U.S. Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic Movements, and most recently, Unreliable Watchdog to News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy, which will be released later this year. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dan. Yeah, it's our pleasure. It's good to talk to you. Uh, and we, we both enjoyed the book. We, we've both had the privilege of getting to see it in advance. And uh, uh, I, in uh, full disclosure, I, I blurred the book, I, I thought it was great um and so I, i'm looking forward to talking about it uh with you uh one, one of the things you say in the book is that uh, as, as america has become a truly global power with commitments around the world and the garrison state that always prepared for armed conflict the conflating of journalism and propaganda has grown more extensive and intensive even with respect to situations that do not involve actual combat Uh, We see this take many forms, deference to the executive over the use of force, celebrating the use of force, uncritically accepting the government's framing of international events, and reinforcing enemy images of other states. Uh, How can the public stay reasonably well-informed when so many of their sources of information offer such slanted and partial reporting?
2: That is indeed the key problem. Uh, The media is supposed to be the alert system for the public to identify Bad policies to identify misconduct on the part of U.S. officials. And this is true for both domestic policy and foreign policy. But when it comes to foreign policy, um, journalists often serve as propaganda agents for the national security state, not a monitor and critic of the national security state. And that does the public a monumental disservice. There are, of course, uh, journalists who resist that temptation, but they also risk marginalizing their careers at best and destroying their careers and reputations at worst. So this is a pervasive corrupt disease within the American uh, political system. And it's growing worse, not better. Right, and
1: as you document in the book this has been a a long-standing problem in u.s uh, media and in the press uh, going all the way back to the the start of our overseas expansion uh with the spanish war and then the, the annexation of the philippines uh where you had yellow journalists uh cheering on uh expansionism then uh to more recently with interventionism in the balkans with journalists acting as advocates rather than reporters um, and, and of course, we've seen many of these same things happening in the 21st century as well. Um, what what are some of these? And you you alluded to some of this in just a, a second ago in your answer. But what are the perverse incentives that cause media outlets and journalists to become uh, auxiliaries for government propaganda?
2: It's a range of uh, a range of incentives, if you will. Um, invocations of patriotism uh, this was particularly strong during both world wars and uh, at least the first two to three decades of the cold war where you were considered a patriot first and a journalist second if that that was very much a subsidiary uh, and subordinate uh, status uh, in addition, uh, just pure career, it uh, if you want to make it big in the news media, you need to find modestly creative ways to present the conventional wisdom. If you're going to be an iconoclast, that is a fast road to obscurity. And then finally, the uh, the pure corruption. We've had journalists who have been aid members of the CIA and served as willing agents of the national security state. Now, I think maybe the root problem, though, is groupthink. Most prominent journalists have been marinated in the same social and educational backgrounds. They've received the same education or indoctrination, whatever term you wish to use. And they view the world in very similar fashions. Um, so this isn't a conspiracy theory. They don't meet every Thursday morning to decide how they're going to present the issues. But they view the world, they view specific issues in virtually the same way. It is maximum group thing. And that makes these other things much easier to justify. They don't have to admit, yeah, I'm saying this because I want to advance my career. No, you know, I'm doing this because this position is correct. It's it's right. It's the only way to view the world.
0: Thanks for coming on, Ted. I really enjoyed your book and I'm very excited uh, to promote it because it's just so important uh, that we talk about uh, the media bias and not only existing today, but how we got here. One of the questions I have, and maybe it's kind of a complicated question, but as a journalist myself, you know, I had come up through that time uh, post Woodward and Bernstein, uh, post Vietnam, mm-hmm. where there was a real sense that reporting and journalism was about exposing government lies. Now maybe that sounds very naive from a Kelly point of view. But I as I understood it, you know, journalism really um came into its own during the Vietnam War, during uh the the Nixon uh years in which a, a real skepticism had crept into the Uh, profession. And that led to a lot of young people like me joining, uh, you know, journalism schools and, you know, the 80s and early 90s with this sense that they too might be able to, to sort of be a crusader against you know government lies, um, uh, corruption, and to expose these sort of things. And that, to me, that leads right back to Vietnam: the the, the sore disappointment mm-hmm. that the, the 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 government, the the political class, and the military had lied to Americans for so long about what was going on there. Um. So fast forward to you know. Um, more current, or not more current, but, you know, fast forward to the first Gulf War, fast forward to Bosnia, and you, as you point out in your book, and I'm, I'm bringing it up right here, you know, it, it, it said, you, you, you say media personnel soon had an especially favored ideological cause, military interventions based on humanitarian objectives that they believed would express in concrete terms America's global status and proper role. Um, It seems as though the media completely shifted from its role as watchdog and um, exposing government lies to believing hook, line, and sinker everything the government said. Is this based on partisanship or what what went on between the 1960s and 70s and the 1990s in terms of journalism?
2: Part of it is partisanship, but I think it's a deeper cause. Uh, I refer to that period, the latter part of the Vietnam War up until the Persian Gulf War, as the skeptical interlude in journalism. It's not what existed before, and it's definitely not what has existed since. Partisanship plays a role, and you do see periods of greater skepticism when the political elite has split, often along partisan lines. It's no accident that most of the Journalistic critics in the 1980s, for example, did not like the Reagan administration and made it easier for them to find things to criticize and have a greater willingness to criticize policies. Uh, Since the Persian Gulf War, we're back into that older bipartisan pro-war pattern. Partisanship still plays an issue, a role rather, But it is not the driving force. It is that uh, static worldview that the United States must lead the world. The United States must micromanage problems everywhere in the world. The United States must be the savior of oppressed peoples everywhere in the world, or at least populations that are not governed by uh, regimes that are allies of the United States. That appears to be the, the actual stand. And we're certainly seeing that uh, uh, take place in almost every war and the United States has waged since the Persian Gulf War. We're certainly seeing it in our proxy war in Ukraine, where we're trying to uh, defeat and humiliate Russia using Ukraine as a pawn, no matter how bloodied that pawn gets. And the journalistic community has not only uh, stood by and watched that passively; it has actively advocated that kind of policy.
0: Thanks, Ted. I totally get that uh, that the partisanship is a plays a role, but is not a, a primary driver of media bias. I recall after nine eleven, uh, President George W. Bush was in charge, and he by no means was a favorite of the liberal media. He was often a target of, of much lampooning for his his gaffes. Every utterance he made uh, was a target for uh, Saturday Night Live skits and and um, other lambasting. And, and, and still there was a consensus at the time after 9-11 among the media about how to approach the war. And everybody seemed to be operating off the same pro-war script. And I remember people, media, celebrities being fired like Phil Donahue and Jesse Ventura Ventura for not keeping to that script at the time, for being skeptical of the coverage and the jingoistic nature of the coverage. So I really get it that there was this consensus building bias and I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about the corporate nature of this consensus building. It seems as though there's there are less independent media today. We know that media has been gobbled up and is pretty much owned by you know, five dominant multinational companies today. There's less independence, uh, there's more risk adversity. Um, you know, share, shareholders or everything. and that seems like a great incentive to to keep uh, on that pro war tip and and be in the good graces of the prevailing government when it comes to wartime coverage.
2: Again, there there are many factors, uh, but the bipartisan pro-war nature, uh, what I call the activist bias, on the part of journalists with regard to U.S. foreign policy, that's the dominant theme. And you can see that even in uh, some relatively minor ways. Literally, the only time the establishment media praised Donald Trump was when he launched missiles against Syria to take out the, some of the Syrian bases. Um, one would look in vain for any other episodes in which they praised Donald Trump and that says a lot that says what the top priority is and one finds uh liberal media types trashing fellow liberals who dared deviate from the pro war script we have seen that if you're if you weren't into the russia collusion uh Narrative. If you're not into the narrative that Ukraine is uh, a wonderful, splendid, tolerant democracy akin to Denmark, well, then you're risking your career. You're going to be smeared. You're going to be uh, under pressure to uh, either uh, adhere to that narrative or watch your job disappear. And One thinks that the corporate ownership has to be at least partly responsible for that. I don't wanna say that's the only uh, reason or even necessarily the dominant one, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly present. It's no accident that uh, the media giants have been infinitely more critical of Russia than China. Although it's really hard to make Hmm. the case that Vladimir Putin, bad as he is, is worse than Xi Jinping, right. and yet that, that—that's very much the image that comes away from mainstream media coverage of those two countries. Well, take a look at the financial ties that the the media companies or their parent corporations have with China. Compare those financial ties to the level of connections to Russia. And it's quite clear that uh, they're much more cautious about stepping on Beijing's toes than Moscow's toes. And I expect that to continue. That problem uh, may even grow a bit worse as we go forward. That uh, when there are huge financial interests at stake, objective journalism is really put on the back burner, if it's on the stove at all.
1: And unfortunately, that's the case. Um, and one of the main examples that comes to mind when thinking about this, this activist bias that you're talking about, this bias in favor of activist and militarized foreign policy, uh, came during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Of course, the coverage not only emphasized the real problems, but exaggerated the potential dangers of, to the U.S. And, and to the world to an absurd extent. And we were told, oh, the the whole U.S. alliance structures were going to come crashing down because we had withdrawn from Afghanistan and many dead-ender defenders of the war itself were given major platforms to spin uh, their story to make it seem as if the withdrawal was the only thing wrong with Afghanistan uh, and that the war itself was not, uh, was not a failed one. Um, what, uh, what did you make of, of the, the very lopsided coverage of the withdrawal from Afghanistan?
2: In part, uh, it was an unwillingness to admit uh previous error. I mean, the media had covered for the uh, defense and foreign policy establishment for two decades, uh, repeating almost verbatim uh, statements from foreign policy and defense officials that we were making progress in Afghanistan, that Afghanistan was democratizing, and yes, it had a corruption problem, but that was getting better. Those were all lies, and it was more than a little embarrassing for the media to admit, well, yes, our coverage has been garbage, and that, in fact, uh, we have just been willing to look the other way while the U.S. debacle in Afghanistan continued. So, this was... Damage limitation and damage limitation in a broader sense, too. That, oh my, we can't let this uh, raise questions about the wisdom of overall US foreign and defense policy. That was the fear. My God, people look at Afghanistan and you're going to get the post Vietnam period on steroids where people are going to say, why are we doing this? Why are we spending billions of dollars in some obscure country? that has no real connection to American uh, American security. Uh, that's why you're getting the effort to hype the Ukraine war as well, that this is a, a battle between democracy and authoritarianism on a global level that Russia poses an existential threat, not just to Ukraine, but to the United States and indeed to the values of democracy globally. You can't imagine a worse threat than this. Soviet Union is puny compared to the kind of threat that Russia now poses. That's the narrative we're getting. I would like to believe that most of the journalists who are providing these uh, rewritten press releases from the State Department, White House and Pentagon, um, actually... No, or at least suspect, no, that's not true. But I think there's at least a segment of true believers. They actually buy this narrative. And I'm not sure which is scarier, the the cynical types, the opportunists, or the zealots who actually believe that world peace and U.S. leadership and democracy itself is at stake in a fight between an ugly authoritarian Russia, and an ugly semi-authoritarian Ukraine. But that's the narrative we're getting, unfortunately.
1: Uh, We're just about out of time, uh, so I just wanted to ask one more thing about the book. Um, uh, Again, the book, Unreliable Watchdog, the News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. Uh, When
2: can readers expect to find that? It's already... On pre-order uh, for Amazon. I'm not sure about uh, the main bookstore chains if that's yet available to pre-order, but it certainly will be soon if it's if it's not now.
1: Okay, very good. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Ted Carpenter. We appreciate it. Uh, and again, uh, new book, Unreliable Watchdog: News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. Look for it uh, on Amazon and, and elsewhere soon.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.